the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, why are we wired to jump to the wrong conclusions? We're going to look at a story that illustrates that. And then, what's the value of failure? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. As you know, if you've spent any time with us here on The Common Good, you know that uh, I'm kind of the sports guy. That was the case when uh, when Ian was on the show, and it is certainly the case now with Aubrey. Uh, I'm kind of the sports guy. I've huge sports fan in my life, raised kids that are huge sports fans. Uh, particularly, I'm an enormous New York Mets fan, which is painful right now. Uh, I'm, I, I kind of feel the pain of you Cub fans. Like, the Cubs kind of sold all their people off, but... Uh, they at least have a plan. The Mets were just went from three and a half up to two and a half back in the span of six games. So very painful. Also a big New York Giants fan. Just love sports, love sports. And there was a story out of the sports world uh, just two days ago that I think is somewhat emblematic of something that I think is a problem culturally for us. Uh, I think it's a problem that has been exacerbated by Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, by social media, by this uh, need to be first with everything. And also by the need, by, by just kind of this value of virtue signaling this, I'm going to see something that everybody else is mad about and I'm going to pile on. I think this has led to uh, us just jumping to conclusions. It's This is one of the drivers of something that we call cancel culture, all of this stuff, uh, kind of this uh, growing sentiment within our culture. And it's something that I saw on Twitter the other day that happened at the Colorado Rockies game. So let me paint the picture for you. The Colorado Rockies were playing uh, the Miami Marlins. It was late in the game. Uh, and uh, the Marlins have a guy by the name of Lewis Brinson. And Lewis Brinson is uh, an African-American outfielder uh, who was up to bat. And and you can hear it in the TV broadcast because the stadium was kind of quiet. It wasn't a very exciting game. And as Brinson is up at the plate, you can hear somebody yelling something in the background. And if you if you listen closely it sounds like somebody is yelling the N-word at Lewis Brinson to the point that uh, the, um, the the TV broadcasters apologized. Oh, I'm so sorry that, that you heard that. That is awful. Uh, that word should never be used. And this got this went crazy on Twitter, just went absolutely nuts on Twitter. Uh, people who have huge followings were just. Uh, retweeting this, so kind of you could you could watch it, and then making their comments. Rex Chapman, Keith Oberman, all these baseball players, all these other people, saying about how terrible it is. The Colorado Rockies came out uh, and denounced it, and they said that this is never okay. We're going to do all we can to find the person and then punish them. There was uh, it was going crazy, but it was kind of strange 
even initially that nobody came forward and was like, hey, it was that guy. Or, hey, it was that person. I was sitting next to them and I couldn't believe it. That no security guard was like, hey, we saw the person. We Because it was loud. It was yelled really loudly. Well, 24 hours later or less than that, what started to come out was that it actually was somebody yelling something completely different. So the the name of the mascot for the Colorado Rockies is Dinger. D-I-N-G-E-R is Dinger. And it would, it, there ended up being a video where you could see an older gentleman in the background in a Colorado Rockies uh, uh, uniform uh, in a shirt yelling towards the mascot who is two or three sections over, dinger, dinger, as loudly as you can. And then everyone came to realize that that's what we heard on the audio. And here's what became fascinating is that I didn't see any of the people who went crazy the day before apologizing. There were some reporters who were reporting the story, people saying, hey, here's what actually happened. But before they ever got the story right, it had been viewed over three and a half million times. And thankfully that they didn't go and like, you know, pull a guy out and kind of publicly shame him because it was just a misunderstanding. And and it got me thinking, first, This goes without saying the use of the N-word is one of the worst things that we have culturally uh, and should never happen. Okay, Uh, but understanding that it didn't happen in this scenario, it makes us ask this question. Why are we so fast right now to jump to conclusions, to jump to a story without actually figuring out what actually happened here? Because all anybody was going on was. What we think we heard in a video, there was no video of a person doing it. There was no corroborating evidence where somebody in the stand says, yeah, that's what that person said. But instead, uh, it was just about this one video. And now it started with the TV broadcaster saying, oh, I'm really sorry that you heard that. Like, I understand how that ball got rolling. But I'm afraid that in our culture, culturally, Because of the rise of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all sorts of other things, because we have this value now in reporting to be first rather than necessarily to be right, because we like to virtue signal like, oh, if everybody else thinks this happened, then I'm in. And and like there's kind of this badge of honor. You see this on Facebook all the time. There's this badge of honor to say, oh, I'm also against this or I'm also for this. If everybody had just taken a deep breath here, then this story would have never have happened. But again, I tell you, it got three and a half million views before it ever uh, changed. And and now this person never got identified. So this person, you know, their life was at room. But it makes me wonder about the number of people where there's a misunderstanding or where something has happened, where the kind of that horse has gotten out of the barn, people have gotten nuts about it and just kind of the virtue signaling that maybe the story was wrong and all of a sudden their life is ruined and they can't come back. It's totally different. It feels a little different, little apples to oranges, but it reminds me as I'm thinking this of Steve Bartman and the 2003 NLCS with the Cubs when he reached over and just did something that all of us would have done and and tried to catch a ball, and people blame him for the Cubs not winning that game, not winning the World Series that year, and his life was ruined. Like, we have this mob mentality, and I'm afraid that this mob mentality, and when we think politically on both sides of the aisle, we see this with COVID stuff right now. 
We see this with at the presidential election. We've got this mob mentality that says, I'm just going to keep pouring gasoline on the fire. I'm going to keep jumping to conclusions. I'm going to keep going with what everybody else thinks. And we're going to pile on without ever asking the question, do I actually know the story? Have I actually done the research? Have I actually checked these things out? Instead, we just pass things around. And and before we can say uh, that it's right or wrong, it's already gone around the world. And we got to be careful that as Christ followers, we are people of the truth. And we can't be people who just spread stuff, spread misinformation, because it might get a few clicks or a few likes or a few comments. We must have higher standards than that. This really bothered me, this story, when I saw it. Uh, because uh, it was all of that wrapped up in one. So wanted to start there. Why do we jump to the quickest wrong conclusions, the worst conclusions? Why do we as a people pile on? What should we do about that as Christians? How do we live differently? Well, coming up next, uh, a sobering and fascinating statistic about online pornography that we need to talk about. We're going to have that discussion next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I've been a pastor for uh, going on 20 years now as a youth pastor and then kind of an assistant pastor. And then we started Four Corners Community Church, and I've been a lead pastor here for almost 12 years. And uh, there's a difficult topic that uh, that we talk about in churches, but, uh, but sometimes I, I don't know that if we talk about it with enough, um, honesty. And that is the issue of pornography. And so I was thinking about this. Is it actually a huge problem? And is it actually a huge problem that Christians maybe are ignoring? And why is it an important conversation to have? And then I came across this site, uh, Relevant Magazine, this article. Uh, it's titled this report. Three porn sites are now more popular than Instagram, Wikipedia, Twitter, and Netflix. According to the most recent numbers about popularity of websites, three pornography websites, I'm not going to name them, have made the top 10 most popular websites in the United States. The trio of adult sites fall only behind Google, Facebook, YouTube, Amazon, and Yahoo. It's a staggering report. Uh, with very concerning implications, it says here, the three major porn video sites now get more traffic than eBay, Twitter, Wikipedia, Instagram, Reddit, and even Netflix. And I read that and I said, that can't be right. That can't be right. And, and so I, I uh, clicked on, they, they had a, a, the study there and sure enough, there it is. And, and I want to start by saying this is a sobering, sobering idea. The, the pornography sites could be this popular. I no idea. I know that pornography is a problem culturally, and we're going to get into this in a minute as to why it's a problem. Uh, but we're good. But but to know that it's that prevalent and that popular is. Uh, let's just start by lamenting by saying that's sad. That's problematic. That's heartbreaking. And the reason for that, primarily. Uh, is because pornography primarily, so this is primarily men objectifying women, looking at women as objects to be, um, to just be gazed at. And, and that, that the Bible has a lot to say 
about sexuality and purity and the importance of of remaining uh, of, of having purity of eyes in a purity of heart. But that pornography rips that away. And if you dig any deeper, you begin to realize that at the heart of pornography uh, is a lot of sex trafficking and human trafficking. It's huge billions upon billions upon billions of dollars of business. And it, it breaks um, how we see each other. It objectifies primarily women. Uh, and is, uh, I can't, uh, I'm just going to be lay cards on the table here, be really blunt. I've done many a marriage counseling as a pastor where marriages are distant or falling apart. And one of the things at the heart of the breaking of the marriage is a pornography addiction. And it certainly is an addiction. And now we have these websites that are just building into this. And we as Christians specifically need to stay nuts. No, it's not going to continue. We're going to talk about this because if we don't, then our sons are going to become addicted and, and the next generation, these things are only going to grow. This big business is only going to grow. And this is a huge problem. Matthew chapter six, verses 22 and 23 says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Let me speak specifically to primarily the men out there. Again, painting with a broad brush. This is primarily uh, a business built on the backs of men, uh, but primarily to the men out there. It is essential that we have a, a, um, a different vision for, for purity, for sexuality, uh, for porno against pornography. We have to guard our hearts and our eyes, and we need to be teaching that to our sons. When we watch the, I just think we've gotten used to this, guys. Like we turn on the TV and there's things you see now that we didn't see when we were kids. You turn on a movie and there's things that we see now that are normal. You turn on Netflix, wherever it is, you, you get on Facebook and other things and you see things that you never used to see. And all of a sudden you become desensitized and we must not become desensitized. And as we've learned with anything that is addictive behavior, once you open that door, it can grab a hold of you and it goes and goes and goes. And pretty soon we're looking at things that we know we shouldn't be looking at. And it's breaking our bonds between our with us and our wives or, or just uh, with females in general. And all of a sudden it, it becomes an enormous problem. We must take this really seriously. When I read this article, three pornography sites more popular than Instagram, Wikipedia, Twitter, Netflix. Uh, it broke my heart. Now to some of you out there who might be listening who are like, yeah, I do have an addiction to pornography. Here's the thing. There's help. There's help. You can look up something called, uh, now be careful how you type this in, but Google the triple X church. That is a website that is there to help men and women, but primarily men, get out of the addiction of pornography through uh, the love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not defined. We are not defined uh, by our vices. Okay, we do not, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what and cleanse us. 
from all unrighteousness. Like these do not have to define us. But if you're one of those people out there who thinks this is no big deal, that you can simultaneously be looking at porn on a regular basis and following Jesus, let me call you to repentance. Okay, you are believing a lie and it is going to come back at you. And I I can't say it more strongly than that. You are believing a lie, a lie from the pit of hell that pornography is not a big deal. It absolutely is. And as followers of Jesus, we must renounce it and stand against it and ask for help when we struggle with it and teach our kids as to the dangers of it. And we just can't be these people who culturally go, eh, no big deal. It is a big deal. But again, the beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ is that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, I hope that that statistic that I read to start this breaks your heart. I hope that it breaks your heart. Well, speaking of things that break our heart, I want to have another hard conversation uh, about if we're going to trust the science for vaccines, what about trusting the science about abortion? We're going to ask that question next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Aubrey Sampson, my normal co-host, is off for the week on vacation, enjoying vacation with her family. She will be back next week. Uh, We just finished talking about a difficult topic, and that was the topic of pornography. And I want to dive into a second difficult topic, but one that I think If you've been around the common good, you know, again, when it was myself and Ian and now me and Aubrey, uh, we have felt it uh, somewhat of a responsibility to talk about abortion because abortion is such a hot button topic in our culture. It brings about so many, um, you know, feelings and emotions and vitriol. And uh, one of the things I struggle with in the abortion conversation is just a complete different starting point. I am, um, I am strongly pro-life. Like I, I think abortion is maybe at the top of the list of the worst things about us culturally. This, uh, this fact that this um, acceptance of the inevitability that people are going to get abortions and that we shouldn't be doing things uh, to try to save the lives of babies. Now, I don't think that often, always, the pro-life side gets right the conversation as to what all those things are. I think we need stricter abortion laws. I think uh, we need to give greater support to moms. I think that there are uh, there's there's conversations to be had about our health care system. It's been proven that if if uh, again, some of you really conservative people are going to yell about this. But I read a, a report that said uh, if if healthcare was more readily available and universal, that it might cut abortions 20 to 30 percent. Um, and so I think we need stricter laws. Uh, we need uh, we need to think about this comprehensively with the end goal being more babies being saved, more babies being born, more lives not being taken before they ever have a chance to really live it out. And I think that we as Christ followers, we are called to stand up for uh, the least of these, uh, for the most marginalized. 
And there is no more least of these. There is no more marginalized. There is no more helpless in our society than the unborn. And we have to remember that, that Jesus uh, had his bent was, as he was here, was towards the least of these. It was towards the helpless. It was towards those that needed, that were at the bottom of the rung. Uh, and culturally for us, there is no doubt that, that at the top of that list is the unborn babies uh, who are being aborted uh, in, in uh, just numbers that are sickening. And so we as the church and as Christ followers, I think, need to dive into this conversation. What's going to help solve the problem? What's going to help moms so that they can have these babies? What's going to, what is the church's role? I just think, how do we support organizations that are at the front lines? But now when you, uh, the, the, oh, I read this quote the other day, and, and I just want to read it to you. It was from an article uh, with Nancy Pelosi. And Nancy Pelosi uh, said this. And I, when I read this, it just made my blood boil. I was just, uh, I, I couldn't even get my arms around it. She said, as a devout Catholic and mother of five in six years, I feel that God blessed my husband and me with our beautiful family. Okay, full stop right there, right? But then she goes on to say, but taxpayer funded abortion is an issue of fairness and justice for poor women in our country. So she she begins by saying that God blessed her and her husband with five kids in six years uh, with a beautiful family. But it's an issue of fairness and justice for poor women that there should be taxpayer funded abortion. Just let that sink in for a second. Why is it OK to say abortion is justified based on someone's economic status that that, OK, it's an economic issue? And we do know uh, that poor um Poor women tend to have higher rates of abortion. We know that that has been proven over and time again. But the issue is not, therefore, let's fund more of their abortions. Let's make their abortions more easily uh, accessible and fundable. The answer is let's figure out a way to get them out of poverty so that they can raise their children or let's figure out a way uh, to alleviate their financial burden so that these babies can be born and raised. The answer is not taxpayer-funded abortion. Uh, the answer is taxpayer-funded whatever else is needed so that that baby can live a life. And this is what bothers me so much. The question, especially for uh, pro-choice, is rarely, if ever, about the baby. It's never about the baby. And now we've got this, right? With all the vaccines and COVID and everything, this question has been, here's the three-word phrase you hear so much through COVID, through vaccines, everything. Trust the science. Trust the science. And over at the Christian Post, Kelly Williams wrote an op-ed called Trust the Science for Vaccines, but what about abortion? I just want to read a little bit of this. Trust the science. This is the new buzz phrase for encouraging people to get vaccinated. Regardless of where you fall on getting the vaccine, I want to unpack the phrase, trust the science. What does it mean to trust the science? The ad campaigns for the COVID-19 vaccines tell us that science tells us that the COVID-19 vaccines are safe, secure, and reliable. I think that the ads are telling us that science has tested the COVID vaccine and has determined that it is safe. Okay, then let's apply this logic. Science has told us a, for a few decades that a fetus has a heartbeat in the womb. At what week does a fetus have a heartbeat? A baby's heartbeat can be detected uh, by ultrasound as early as three to four weeks after conception or five to six weeks after the first day 
of the last menstrual period. This early embryonic heartbeat is fast, often at 160 to 180 beats per minute, twice as fast as adults. So science tells us that a fetus is without a doubt a human at the age of three weeks in the womb. But yet no state in the United States prohibits abortion after a heartbeat has been detected. And she goes on to ask, why is this? Why is this? If we're going to say, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science, then let's trust the science here. Science has moved from the time of Roe versus Wade, and we come to a greater understanding of what's going on in the womb and when a baby is actually has a heartbeat. So when are we going to trust the science? I feels like trust the science is just another political slogan used for whatever it is that you personally believe in. Right? We're told when it comes to COVID-19, trust the science. But we've been told now for decades to ignore the science when it comes to the life of the unborn. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And that's what we need to do. Trust the science. I'm with that with a vaccine. I tell people all the time, trust the science, read it, figure it out. But let's actually use that same logic when it comes to protecting and saving the unborn. Listen to the science. Trust Jesus. And uh, as she says here to end, he is our only hope. You know, one of the organizations that we partner with here at AM 1160 is Focus on the Family. You can hear Focus on the Family every weekday at 1130 a.m. right here on AM 1160. And they cover this topic all the time. They're covering important conversations about celebrating life and supporting women and men facing unplanned pregnancies with their Sea Life 2021 video series. So I do want to point us to that. Some of those videos, you can find them at focusonthefamily.com slash sea life, focusonthefamily.com slash sea life. This has always been at the heart of what Focus on the Family does. But I just want to leave us with that. Trust the science. Trust the science and and let's trust the science when it comes to the vaccine, but let's also trust the science as we learn more and more and more about that baby in a mother's womb. I think this is a topic that we have to talk about over and over again, not just on this show, but in churches and that we as a church, this is a hill to die on. This is a hill for us to die on. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about failure. Uh, the Olympics just finished a lot of failure at the Olympics, but how does, how do we grow when it comes to failure? How does failure help us grow? We're going to discuss that next year on the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to the common good AM 1160 hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a Tuesday afternoon. Hope that you are having a great day. Maybe it's coming to an end, going home for the evening. Wherever you are in your day, we hope that it has been a good one. Something that just came to the end. Maybe you just don't know what to do in the evening time now because the last two weeks, uh, you have been just kind of immersed and, and watching the Olympics. And so the Olympics have been going on each night. And, you know, it started with gymnastics and Simone Biles and, uh, you know, all of that. And then the swimming. So it's kind of gymnastics and swimming in the beginning. Then it moves to track and field, uh, probably inspired by Allison Felix and so many of the track and field people. You got basketball, both men and women both won the gold medal. The U.S. ended up with the most golds being beating China by one gold medal and uh, U.S. also by a lot had the most medals. And so it was really fun to watch the Olympics. 
but there's something inherently uh, there's something inherent to the Olympics, and that's failure. Have you ever thought about that? First of all, there's all the people who have wanted to be in the Olympics and the ninety nine point nine 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 percent of I don't know what the number is, but percent of people uh, who do gymnastics or track and field or whatever else who never get to experience the Olympics. So there's that. But then there's always that wonder, that feeling of failure at the Olympics, because all of us know as we're watching the Olympics that the men and women there that we are watching, they have spent their life just dedicated to what they're about to do for the next five minutes, right? That swimmer has been getting up early day after day after day, swimming, practicing, and giving up really many other things of life for that moment of jumping into the pool there. That that sprinter has been doing this over and over again. And one of the hardest things about watching the Olympics is when you see that failure in front of you and, and it just crushes them. I think the Winter Olympics are coming up only in another year and a half, I think. Or no, it might even just be this winter. Uh, but when the Winter Olympics and you watch figure skating, right? And there's always that moment where a figure skater falls or what we just watched with gymnastics where the gymnast doesn't stick the landing. And you're like the, the crushing nature of that failure. You wonder, uh, is there any purpose in it? Is there any redemption to it? Because what, you know, what we love in the Olympics is the victory story. But with each victory, there are defeats around them. I watched a race the other day and a guy was, uh, he was favored to win a medal. I forget which race it was, maybe the 1500 meters. And he came within like 0.05 seconds of getting the bronze, but he came in fourth place. Didn't medal. And you're just like, you were less than a second. You were a fraction of a second. Uh, from meddling and you didn't. So I want to talk about the concept of failure, not just with the Olympics, but here's the truth for us as Christ followers. Then at the end of the segment, I want you to hear from a a Hall of Fame football player uh, speaking about uh, failure. Uh, The Bible is full of conversations about failure. It's full of failures. And I, I think taking it away from the arena of sports and Olympics, there's a lot of you out there who feel like failures. You have failed at various things in your life. And you just go, is there anything good about me? Is there anything redemptive about me? Can God do anything? And, and Timothy uh, Dalrymple over Christianity Today, he wrote about this. It, literally, the article's entitled, The Olympics Are About Failure. And he, he takes it to our faith and what the Bible has to say about failure. And I just want to read what he had to say because I found it to be really inspiring. He says, when we're willing to learn from failure's instruction, however, failure can be the best thing that ever happened to us. The Bible is rife with stories of failure. Could Abraham and Moses have become exemplars of faith if they had not failed? Could David have written his Psalms? The teacher in Ecclesiastes tried to find meaning in the pursuits of the world and were blessed by the wisdom he gained through failure. Would Peter and Paul have become supple instruments in the hands of God if they had not been humbled by their failures? He says, in retrospect, I can see it. Failure, the failures he endured, he talks about, has shaped me so profoundly that I hardly know who I would be apart from them. It showed me the end of myself. It taught me compassion. It showed me my many sins and flaws. It showed me my need for a strength beyond my own. It illuminated the grace of God. In some respects, uh, the Olympic dream plays a role similar to the law in Romans 3. As an ideal perfection, it inspires striving, failure, and ultimately the acknowledgement of our own shortcomings and our utter dependence on God. 
Uh, it says failure for your failure will refine you if you let it. It will shape you more and more into the likeness of Christ. And in becoming like Christ, you become an instrument for his glory and for the good of the world. There's a purpose in our failure. There's a opportunity in our failure. And I just love the examples uh, that Timothy Dalrymple, he's the president and CEO at Christianity Today. I, I love uh, kind of some of the examples. Peter fails over and over and over again. But in his failures, he, he, um, he experiences the redemption of God. He experiences the forgiveness of his friend Jesus. He experiences the power of Jesus in his life. And he's defined in some ways by the failure when he fails to walk on water, when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, or when he denies Jesus three times, but Jesus restores him. Peter failed over and over and over again. I think of Paul, he brought up, you think of Paul and Barnabas, like they were, uh, they were traveling together. And then uh, the big uh, disagreement with Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and, and, uh, and John, and, and the split that could have ended things, but instead it multiplied the gospel. You think about the failures of David, literally this Sunday at our church, I am preaching on David and Bathsheba. And the ultimate, the, the enormous failure there of David. And what does God do? Does God give up on David? No, there's consequences for sure. But does he give up on him? And the list goes on and on. Abraham, Moses, Solomon, others of failures, colossal failures, who God uses to impact people and change the world. Friends, that's what your failures can be in your life. You don't need to be defined by your mistakes, by your failures. You can bring them to God and, and he can take, he can bring, what's that song say? Uh, beauty out of ashes. He can bring beauty out of ashes. Uh, uh, football player and also host of Good Morning America, Michael Strahan. Uh, I saw this as I was thinking about failure. Uh, he talked about failure as a driver for him. Let's listen to that. You keep fighting when failure gets in the way because failure is the thing that keeps you going. It's not the, the success is one thing, but success without failing along the way is kind of empty. One thing that you want, you want to look back and realize that the journey was the real thing that you needed to go through and wanted to go through that led to all the success that you wanted in the future. And I don't know anything that is worth it that's easy. So failure is a part of life. Failure is a part of the thing that builds character. And failure is the thing that everyone experiences. There's no one who's successful who hasn't experienced failure. But what they've done is they've turned to failure into motivation. So I wanted to end there. Allow your failure to drive you to greater success. And also allow your failure as a Christian to drive you to the feet of your God. And allow him to put you back together, allow him to lift you up, allow him to bring redemption and allow him to use your failures uh, to make a big difference in the lives of other people and to make your life ultimately the success that he wanted. Well, coming up next, I didn't want to do this, but there was just a crazy thing that a preacher said the other day that was flying around Twitter that I want to just reflect upon. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, is a Christian getting vaccinated just giving in to fear? 
And then we're joined by Mary Catherine Backstrom, author of the new book, Holy Hot Mess, Finding God in the Details of This Weird and Wonderful Life. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, great to have you here on The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, I want to talk vaccines and the church. I want to talk vaccines and Christians. I want to talk COVID-19 and the Christ follower, because there's a lot going on out there. Should Christians get vaccinated? Should anybody get vaccinated? Should Christians get vaccinated? Or as some people are starting to uh, uh, say, or at least hint at, uh, or come out very bluntly and say, the Christian doesn't need to be vaccinated because of the blood of Jesus because we are protected. Uh, and so if you think that I'm overstating that, let me, and, and I hesitate to, um, to platform some of these people, but I think it's important to hear what's going on there. This was at an enormous event called America's Revival the other day. This was at America's Revival, which was broadcast on cable news. It was a big deal. Uh, and this is a radical right-wing preacher, a self-proclaimed radical right-wing preacher by the name of Joshua Fuerstein, Uh, And listen to what this preacher has to say. Listen to me. I understand. And let me speak now to the cameras around the world, to every pastor that's watching this broadcast, to every Christian that has cowered in your home. I realize that for this last year that maybe you've been fed fear and fear and fear. But the Bible says that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. You have a sound mind. You don't have to wear the mask. You got Jesus. Jesus. You don't need the vaccine. You got Jesus. All right. So I heard that and it's flying around Twitter. And as you can imagine, a lot of people who are Christians and who are not Christians have some thoughts about this. But I just want to start by asking, especially those of you out there who believe what he's saying there, uh, who say, yeah, amen. That guy's totally right. Uh, I want to ask some of you out there to to think about the logic of what he said and if you still believe it. Uh, so he said that uh, we as Christians do not need to get to wear a mask because you have Jesus and you don't need the vaccine because you have Jesus. Uh, and I would add, uh, again, on the, do I believe that Jesus can protect? Yes, obviously. But here's here is the question I would ask, especially uh, Pastor Fierstein, if I'm saying his name correctly, uh, is this. Do you wear your seatbelt? A lot of the people that I know who are saying a lot of these things, they're big gun rights people. And, and one of the rights, one of the thought processes behind a gun is protection. Why do you need a gun for protection if G- you've got Jesus? Like, like, do you see, why do you buy a car with an airbag? If you went, if you went to go see the doctor and the doctor said you have cancer, but there's a way you to can treat that through chemotherapy or whatever else, would you say, nope, I'm good. I don't need it. If you broke your leg and you went to the doctor and the doctor said, Hey, we've got a simple solution. We could set your leg with the same pastor say, you know what? I'm good. I don't need it. If something was wrong with one of your kids and you took them to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, uh, we, we've got this, uh, we, we can fix what's going on with your kid. 
Would you say, no, I'm not going to do it. You have mental health issue and, and, and you go to a, a psychiatrist and they say, hey, uh, there's medication that could really help. It's not going to cure you, but could it could really help. Would you say, nope, I don't need it. That's the thought process here. That's the exact thought process here. Friends, I, 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 I think I understand where a lot of people are coming from when they say they don't want to get the vaccine. Like, I understand it. I don't agree with it. I've been vaccinated, but I understand it. But when we make the thought process being God has called you not to be scared and you have Jesus, therefore you don't get the vaccine, then I would just encourage you live that out with the rest of your life. Because I'm guessing those of you who still say that take Advil when you have a headache. I'm guessing that those of you who say that still encourage people to get treatment when they have cancer. I'm guessing you still put your seatbelt on. And for some of you, you still have a gun in the house to protect. Why do you lock your front door at night? In all seriousness, why would, if you believe this, why would you lock your front door at night? To say, uh, taken completely out of context, that God doesn't give us a a spirit of fear. Fine. If you're going to use that interpretation of it, then all I would encourage you is to use it across the board instead of just cherry picking it to be about vaccines and masks when you know that's not the case. Just say, I don't want to get the vaccine because it hasn't been tested. I don't want to get the vaccine because of X, Y, or Z. But to say that uh, I'm not able, well, what does this say about all the other Christians who have died of COVID? What are you saying when you say that to their families? Were they not Christians? Did they not have enough faith? What are you saying to those families when you say that? What we say about Jesus matters. It matters. And it reminds me of this Florida church. Uh, I believe it's down in the Jacksonville area called Impact Church uh, that sadly, after six of the congregation's members, six passed away from COVID-19 over the course of 10 days. And they said, you know what? We've got to do something about this. And they ran an event where 800 people were vaccinated in March. And they ran one on Sunday with 269 people. They're encouraging people to get vaccinated. But this church learned the hard way. Oh my gosh, this is a real deal. We have another 15 to 20 other church members who are reportedly battling COVID-19 in the hospital. And so this church, be praying for this church. But man, I get so mad when I see preachers here like Joshua Feuerstein and others because of what it says to people at that church in Jacksonville who have lost loved ones. You cannot listen to him when he says you don't need the vaccine because you have Jesus. You can't listen to that and then look those people in the eye and say, well, there must have been something wrong with those people's faith because they still died. They still died. Like just if you don't want the vaccine, just say you don't want the vaccine. You don't need to over-spiritualize it. You don't need to blame Jesus for it. And here's what I would close again. If that really is your belief system, you don't need the vaccine because you have Jesus, then do the same thing with cancer. Do the same. Don't lock your door tonight. Put your gun away. You don't need it. Don't take that Advil for the headache. Whatever else it might be, be consistent at least, rather than using Jesus as a talking point to get on some website or something so people will know who you are. It's just shameful. It's just shameful. I find that so, so shameful.
Well, coming up next, we're, we're excited to change gears and talk to Mary Catherine Backstrom. She's the author of a new book called Holy Hot Mess, Finding God in the Details of This Weird and Wonderful Life. Mary Catherine Backstrom is going to join us next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Uh, we're thrilled to be joined by the author of a new book that just came out called Holy Hot Mess, Finding God in the Details of This Weird and Wonderful Life. That author is Mary Catherine Backstrom. Mary Catherine, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. And you told us off air after, you know, we'd introduce you formally, but you go by MK. So we're going to do that for the rest of the way. Uh, before we jump into the book, which just looks great, congratulations on, on the book coming out. Uh, before we jump in, why don't you introduce yourself so our audience can get to know you a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So obviously I'm Mary Catherine, but my friends and my people call me MK. Um, I was born and raised in Alabama. I got married pretty young. I was about 21 in undergrad. And um, that was not common in my circle of friends at the time. So I've been married for roughly 15 years. I've got two kids, um, two kind of like terrible dogs. They don't know how to behave and a cat. named <laughs> Waffles. And um, I, I'm just kind of living my best life doing the whole mom thing after um, schools were shut down for a long time. I'm mm -hmm. kind of back to this pseudo normal and I am loving it. Isn't it? Isn't that the case? I got married at 22, by the way, and the rest of my friends looked at me like, you're doing what? <laughs> I, you know, I have to ask you, was your wedding reception like it was almost like a college party? It was so hilarious as nobody knew, knew what to do. My friends were like, well, I guess... I guess we celebrate. <laughs> it was, I love that you said that. That's so true. And then, you know, years later, all my other friends got married. But yeah, that was especially uh, my secular, my non-Christian friends. They were especially like, you're getting married at 22. Like, yeah, I found the love of my life. <laughs> so, I know, it's great. No, they all thought I was pregnant. I'm like, actually, I'm just happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Well, again, your new book is called Holy Hot Mess. It looks fascinating and really, really great. Could you just describe the book? What's the book about? Why did you write this particular book at this stage? Well, um, you know, I grew up in church and I've always been what I call kind of like a disaster magnet. Um, <laughs> I have a tendency of going through life and uh, collecting mess and I'm not a good actress. So I wear my mess on my sleeve. And a lot of times I would kind of feel like, where's my place in this um, body of Christ? If I am such a messy person. If I'm so rough around the edges, what does that mean for somebody like me? Mm. And um, I, what I decided was as an adult, after years and years of therapy, that maybe these two things are actually cohesive, that maybe grace exists because there is mess and that there's no shame in having both of those identities, a messy person who also loves Jesus. And so when I had the opportunity to write a book, I knew that one of the first things I wanted to do was kind of express that message because the more candid and the more authentic I am about my mess online, I continue to get this feedback from people who are like, hey, I thought I was the only one that mm. felt this way, that did these crazy things. And so the message is pretty easy that, you know, um, mess exists, but God's in it. And so that was the kind of underlying current behind every story in the book. Well, that's great. I, I know I also grew up in the church and there seems to be this unspoken, and I think this is what you're getting at, this unspoken, like, if you're a good Christian, your life won't be messy. 
Like yes. they, there's, they work against each other. Uh, so before I ask you, I want to know why that's so dangerous, but why do you even think that is? Why do you think we even subtly get that message of you have to have it all together if you're going to follow Jesus? You know, I don't think it's biblical. So I think the message is cultural. I think that we show up to church um, expecting other people to just be doing better than us. And so we kind of like zip ourselves up in this tidy, um, well-behaved suit. And uh, it's almost like a separate identity. There's our church selves and then there's our after church selves. But God wants us seven days of the week. Like he He loves your Monday person as much as your Sunday person. And so, you know, and I agree with you. It is it is a very dangerous thing because what it does is it kind of um, if we feel like we can't show up in that neat and tidy form, we feel like we shouldn't show up at all. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how we lose. That's how we lose people from the church is how we lose people from the faith, because they feel like, well, I'm not clean enough. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. Yeah. Was there a moment in your life where you realized, wait a minute, uh, I'm not the only mess. Everyone, it, we've all got issues. Was there a kind of a light bulb moment for you? <laughs> um, I think there was a collection of moments, but they mostly happened on Facebook, which is ironic because I know <laughs> social media. I know. I mean, social media is such a funny thing, right? It can actually harm people, but that it can also bring good. And for me, it brought a lot of good because what I would do is when Facebook Live rolled out that function where you can do videos that are not edited, um, I decided to just pop on and tell a couple of funny stories. And that's when I started getting consistent feedback from people like, hey, thanks for sharing that like wild and crazy moment. Like it made me feel less alone. So then I started talking more about my mental health issues. I started kind of sharing more and more. And this this collection of people kind of started hovering in the comments section like, hey, I like what this girl's talking about. She's mm-hmm. kind of messy, but she also loves Jesus. Maybe there's room for me at this table. Mm-hmm. That's great. What role, you kind of touched on it there online, but what role does community play? What role does the church play in helping us kind of not just see the mess in our life and feel accepted, but also deal with the messy parts of our life? Yeah, I mean, community is essential. And that's something that I really lost in my 20s. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of felt like I had, I walked away from church as like a cor- like the corporate church, the togetherness and the worship that you come together in like an actual building. I left that for a while because I didn't feel like I fit. And what happens is you lose that beautiful thing that happens when you sit down face to face with somebody and you share your mess and they share their mess and you see a little bit of grace reflected in one another. Um, You know, when you start talking about your struggles, whether they're the palatable mess or the mess, like the bad stuff, I mean, there's everything from in the church, there's everything from alcoholism to adultery. Mm. I mean, we think that we can only bring, you know, small palatable mess to the table, but that's not what grace is about. And so the more I realized that people really wanted to talk about their struggles and really kind of figure out their spirituality within that, um, the more comfortable and confident I became sharing my own. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. Uh, so what do you think? So, uh, so you do talk about, there's going to be lots of hilarious, heartbreaking stories. So it's probably hard to pick a story, but I'd love to hear a story. What what's one story that you share in your book and how God uses that mess in your life? It is so hard to pick. Oh, I know, I know, but now they'll go get the book, right? So they got all the other stories out there. Um, what I, funny thing is a lot of the stories in my book revolve around animals. And I did not realize that until I started (laughs) reading the chapter names. Um, there's stories about guinea pigs and hamsters and goats. I mean, it's like so out there, but I think that probably one of my favorite stories is when I was in high school, I started a Christian band, a little (laughs) garage band. Right. Um, and we were playing at this ginormous venue that, I mean, in our mind, it was 
you know, the next step was going to be a platinum album. Um, <laughs> it was called the Peanut Festival. <laughs> That's awesome. And so our band was at the Peanut Festival. And during a break, we went to go check out a petting zoo. And while there, I saw a guy kind of smack the little baby goat. He he wasn't going to eat out of everybody's hands. And so he wasn't making this guy money. And I was so upset by this that I stole the goat. <laughs> and, and the Christian band members, they all assisted me in this endeavor. And so we ended up backstage with a goat um, right before our second set. And I kind of joke about, you know, it's so important to find community, but you don't want to just find friends. You want to find your fellow goat thieves. The <laughs> They're in it with you. They're ready, you know. And so that's one of my favorite stories that I share, even though it, it probably does reveal my criminal record, my past. <laughs> All right. I have to ask. And again, people need to go get the book for more stories like this. But what did you so you've got the goat backstage? Then yeah. what? the goat. The, so then my I had the wise idea because I'm 16 at this. You know, my brain is not fully developed. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I decided that a good place for the goat because backstage is probably scary is my mom's car, which I had borrowed <laughs> to take to the concert. And so I went and put the goat in the backseat of my mom's car where I figured he'd just take a rest or something. And I, at the end of the night, you could only imagine what that car looked like with the goat having been in there for several hours. I was in so much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) But you saved the goat. (laughs) The goat survived. He no longer went back to a petting zoo. The end story of that goat is kind of a sweet, um, kind of a sweet little bow on the top of the story. So I'm going to leave that one unresolved. But I will tell you that there is a happy ending for Barnaby. Oh, that's awesome. You can find that happy ending at Holy Hot Mess, Finding God in the Details of This Weird and Wonderful Life. The author of that new book is Mary Catherine Bagstrom. Before we jump back into the book, uh, I was getting ready to interview you. You know what we do nowadays? We Google people and we kind of read up. And I kept reading about you having a viral video that landed you on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And I'm sure everybody asks you about that, but I need to know that story. I expect people to ask me about that because, let's be honest, it's probably one of the most interesting things about me. I love sharing this story. Um, Wow. I mean, because once you go on the Ellen show, like where else can you go from there? Exactly. (laughs) Um, I did this. I did a video. I, you know, in our in our previous segment, I talked a little bit about how one of my favorite things to do is a Facebook live when I have a moment to share a funny story, a messy story, just kind of anything that would interest my audience. And um, I had one of those moments. I was cel- it was Christmas, the week before Christmas, maybe. And I am like Buddy the Elf when it comes to Christmas. It's my favorite. <laughs> it is my favorite. And so I was really feeling the Christmas magic. And I went to the gas station to... It's a gas station, by the way, called Wawa. When the video mm-hmm. went viral, nobody knew what Wawa was, which makes me sad because <laughs> Wawa is amazing. But um, I was buying a, a ginger ale and I came outside and I saw this man washing my windshield and I was just so touched by the magic of Christmas, you know. So I walked up to him and I told him how much I loved Christmas and humanity and I gave him a huge hug. And that moment was when I realized he was actually cleaning his own windshield. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was embarrassing and I don't recover well. So I just literally walked away like, Bye, and sat down in my car, did a Facebook live and recounted this story to what I expected to be my parents and some friends. And a couple hours later, it had several million views. And it was one of those, it just snowballed. I Over the weekend, it got up to 50 million. And I had never seen anything like that before. And I've had some viral videos, but this was next level. Yeah. And by the end of the week, um, I got a call from um, the producers of Ellen. And I honest to goodness thought, okay, yeah, right. This is like some Nigerian <laughs> prince who wants me to claim my inheritance. <laughs> 
They're yes. going to ask me for a Western Union number. Turned out it was real. And so I ended up on the show um, Christmas week, and it was just a roller coaster, but it was so cool. That is awesome. And I really, I'm going to go back and Google it. I think I remember that video. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the majority of the video is me laughing hysterically into the camera. It's yes. hard not to when you do something. That like is that. awesome. That is, I'd encourage people to go Google that. So, again, the book is Holy Hot Mess Finding God and the Details of This Weird and Wonderful Life. And MK, what would you say to the person sitting in their car right now? They're listening and they're like, hey, uh, my life is a mess, but it feels completely overwhelming. God could never do anything with my mess. To put it this way, it's just too messy. Right. What would you say to that person? I would say that no matter what, your rap sheet is not so impressive that you can turn Jesus away. Like mm. I think about the people in the Bible who God redeemed and they were murderers and they were adulterers and they did the things that we consider the big bad sins, right? I mean, maybe if we even are those people, there's grace enough for all of it. Grace is sufficient. And so um, I am not just the kind of messy that's palatable. You know, I think that we kind of see mess as like, oh, she doesn't take showers six days a week or her, her minivan has crumbs in it. But this is the kind of mess that plays well to an audience. And, and some of us feel like, well, our mess is just bigger than that. And we don't want to talk about it on TV, you know, on camera. We're not willing to share that in Bible study. I promise you, no matter how big and how dark your mess is, Jesus can handle it. So yeah. that is my message. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. We talked in the first part of the interview about churches and how churches have never been really good at being places that make people, you know, we talked about how people feel like they need to be perfect. How can, can you think of one or two things? I'm a pastor. What can we as pastors and churches do better in order to help people in order to create environments where people feel okay talking about their mess and feel okay being messy? What do you think churches could do better? Oh, gosh. I mean, as a pastor, I feel like you have this tension that you have to manage between being above reproach and not sharing too much because you're a leader, but then also setting an example of, um, you know, candor and honesty. I think you just have to make sure that people have enough intimate support groups. I've always loved the small groups um, settings in churches mm -hmm. because we're a lot more likely to share our heart with five people than we are with a room with 50 um, so I think that as long as you create those intimate environments where people have the opportunity to share and then you raise up leaders who are already doing that, that you're doing the best you can um, yeah. as a pastor. And then, you know, pray for your flock. That's what you, that's what you're there to do. And I, I think just keep reminding them that this a church is a hospital. We're supposed to be sick. We're supposed to show up messy. That's the whole purpose here. Yeah. Again, the book uh, is full. Holy hot mess is just full of, like you said, heartbreaking, but also funny stories. So I got to ask about one, just the title of a chapter. Chapter 10, you talk about anniversary rats. Like that's oh gotta be, there's got to be a story behind that. So I, I tell me about anniversary rats. Oh, that was my first anniversary, actually. And I told you that we married young, but like I, my husband and I just didn't get it. When we got married, we had that very simplified youth group idealism of like marriage fulfills me and this is it. Now I'm happily ever after. Yep. Things aren't hard anymore. <laughs> so we got married and we were very excited. And then um, life kind of hit us, you know, and by our first anniversary, we were kind of limping along financially. We discovered that love wasn't enough to pay bills and we had communication struggles. Well, that all came to a head when my husband decided to give me what he thought would be the greatest anniversary gift ever, <laughs> which as you can imagine, based on the title was a rat. 
Um, that did not go over well. Um, and I was certain it was the end of our union. Like we were, that was it. It's time to go like figure out how we're going to, um, separate our very little assets because he gave me a rat for my anniversary. But I mean, what it did was it kind of revealed bigger problems within our marriage. And, And the way it did, it was hilarious. I mean, sometimes the way that that mess shows up is actually just hysterical. And the rat on the cage for my anniversary was one of those life moments that I will replay forever. And at the time it was so cringe and I cried. Now it's just hilarious. (laughs) Mr. Jingles was his name, by the way. He did not live in our house very long. I was going to say, did you keep the rat? Spoiler alert, we do not keep the rat. (laughs) We do not keep the rat. It was just going to drive that wedge into the marriage night. Oh, yeah. I mean, the rat literally lasted five minutes. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I often tell people we got married young as well. And our first our very first fight in marriage was about how long we could go before uh, before one of us did the laundry. And oh, uh, man. Oh, you played chicken with the laundry. Yes. And it was in that moment that I said, oh, this is going to be harder than we thought. <laughs> yeah. No, you can't play chicken. Oh, I, I can only see. That's great. Our first fight was on the way to the honeymoon on our honeymoon, <laughs> um, which is also in the book. So I'm not you know, there's so much no. just young marriage brings such a wealth of good stories. <laughs> it's so true. That's so true. Well, MK, as we close this up, you did this a little bit before, but I want to give you just a minute to speak to the people who are just feeling overwhelmed. We, we Pandemic. Pilot, all sorts of stuff. Some people just feel really overwhelmed. Could you speak to those people as we close this out? I just want to encourage people to know that, like, um, I've always said that sometimes it feels like you're in the darkness so bad that the only light at the end of the tunnel is a train. And that's not the case. Um, things can feel very heavy and they can feel very dark. And a lot of um, what we feel like our response to that is to just kind of make our world smaller, to retreat to our own quiet lives and not step out and risk relationships and conversations about these things. Um, But take the risk. Um, When you're hurting, it's important that you reach out and find community. It's important that you reach out and get help, be that through the church or therapy or all of the above, which is what I recommend. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, be honest about your mess because once you take that step and it's and you're vulnerable, you're going to find the people who are willing to also share. And that's such a healing experience. So if you're struggling, don't give up. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train. Um, there's grace there and just keep going. Sometimes that's the only thing you can do is just one day at a time. Keep going. Amen. That's a great word. Again, Mary Catherine Backstrom is the author of a new book called Holy Hot Mess. Finding God in the details of this weird and wonderful life. We'd encourage you to go pick that up. You can learn more about MK and her book at holyhotmess.com. That's holyhotmess.com. You can connect with her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. MK, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this with us. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. Have a good day. You too. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. When we get to the end of the show, we we try to strategically do stuff that will encourage you or inspire you or challenge you, give you something to think about, particularly as it pertains to kind of following Jesus in our lives. What will, uh, how can I grow? And so Uh, With that in mind, I was reading at the Gospel Coalition the other day. This came out a few days ago by Andrew Wilson. Andrew Wilson writes regularly at the Gospel Coalition. He's a pastor, writer, and he wrote this. 
Uh, he wrote about the topic of salt. He said, what does it really mean to be the salt of the earth? That comes out of Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Wilson begins that then he begins the article by saying few things are more ordinary than salt. I actually didn't know all of this. He said most of us have interacted with it in the last couple hours. We use it to make leather, pottery, soap, detergents, rubber, clothes, paper, cleaning products, glass, plastics, and pharmaceuticals. It sits largely unnoticed on hundreds of millions of cafe and restaurant tables around the world. I never knew that salt was that in everything, but he says salt is everywhere. It actually covers 70% of the surface of our planet. Salt is everywhere. And so he wants to say, for those of us who are Christ followers, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, what does he mean? What does he mean? He says it's ordinariness and its use in all cultures, making an obvious candidate for Jesus to use as an illustration. Uh, but Wilson's going to go on to make a list of five things here as to uh, five purposes of salt that then he says, when we take all of these together, we begin to get a picture for what we're supposed to look like culturally, like, right? Jesus is not, Jesus is saying that one of the descriptors for us as his followers is we are the salt of the earth, that what salt does is what we, is the impact that we're supposed to have in this world, in other people's lives, that that is uh, something that we are to take in. So what exactly does he mean here? Well, one of the purposes that salt has, he says, is flavoring. It makes food taste better. He says, this is probably the use of salt that most of us think of because it's the only one of the five that still applies today. Regardless of whether Jesus's original audience thought of this first, it's a powerful illustration of the way Christians are to serve the world. We're intended to spread throughout the world and enhance it, add flavor to it, uh, draw out the blessings of whatever is good and provide a contrast by being distinct and different, right? Paul says in Colossians 4 that our speech is to be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the kind of thing he says we have in mind. It is, it flavors, salt flavors. And we too, as Christians are to bring out the good in the world. We are to give it flavor. That's number one. Number two, he says, preserving. Salt was the ancient equivalent of refrigeration. If you wanted to stop meat or fish from decaying, you rub it with salt and make it edible for longer. This was the main reason salt was so valuable. Salt Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt which, as an aside, is the original origin of the word salary. Disciples of Jesus, in this sense, Wilson says, are sent into the world to keep it from decay, preserving its goodness and preventing it from becoming corrupted or ruined, which is a helpful thing to bear in mind as we go to work or go to our neighborhoods every day. Uh, salt does not just savor. It doesn't just bring out flavor. It saves. That's number two. Number three, sacrificing. This may well be related to the previous two functions of salt, although it's probably less familiar to us. So listen to this story. He says, early in Israel's history, Moses explained how Israel was to offer sacrifice. He says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant uh, with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Perhaps because it flavored food and kept it from going bad, salt was necessary part of the sacrifice and even represented God's covenant 
with them. Disciples are salt in this sense, Wilson says. The world is an altar. Humanity and the world are to become a single great offering to God. We're to offer ourselves in obedience uh, in the same way that Moses said, do so with salt. Number four, destroying. This is the one we find much less appealing, but we can't get away from it. There are more scriptural references to salt being used in judgment or destruction than any other purpose, right? Lot's wife, what did she turn into? A pillar of salt. Jesus, it's a story Jesus then refers to for the day of his coming. Moses warns the Israelites that if they break God's covenant, their land will be burned out with brimstone and salt. When Gideon's son Abimelech tries to set himself up as king, the men rebel against him, and he responds by raising the city and sowing it with salt. The psalmist describes God turning a fruitful land into a salty waste. Jesus himself, in one of his fiercest judgment paragraphs in the gospel, says simply in Mark 9 that everyone will be salted with fire. Salt in the ancient Near East was used to express judgment upon evil. Uh, and that's what we're called to do. The church has failed to live this way, but, but we are uh, to stop evil. We're to call out evil. We are to uh, be the salt of the earth in the sense they know that's not right. That's what salt does. And the last one is fertilizing. The last one Wilson brings up is fertilizing. He says, several ancient civilizations use salt as a fertilizer for the soil. It could help the earth retain water, make fields easier to plow, release minerals for plants, kill weeds, protect crops from disease stimulate growth and increase yield. The reason this matters is that Jesus specifically describes his people as the salt of the earth, which in farming culture would have been significant. Disciples are fertilizers. That's what Wilson says. We're meant to be in those places where conditions are challenging and life is hard. And then we bring about life. We enrich the soil. And Wilson ends this way. So when Jesus said, we're the salt of the earth, what did he mean? Did he mean that God will use us for flavoring, preserving, sacrificing, destroying, or fertilizing? In a word, yes. If people tell you that it's about only one of those things, by all means, hear them out. But take it with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Great ending there by Andrew Wilson. <clears throat> I wanted to end here because if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you know that phrase, right? You are the salt of the earth. And we never, we don't give a ton of thought to what does that mean? And I think Wilson really, um, to use the pun here, gives it flavor. That that is multifaceted in how we are to be. But friends, as Christians, we are to make a difference. We're to bring flavor. We're to preserve. We are to uh, enrich the soil. We're to call out judgment and call out the badness in the world. All of this, such a great metaphor that Jesus used to describe his followers. You are the salt of the earth. Friends, as we close out the show, let me encourage you, go live that out. We're looking forward to a good show tomorrow, uh, and we wait for Aubrey to come back next Monday. But uh, tomorrow, I'm going to be joined by Clarissa Mall uh, as we talk about all sorts of great things. Uh, we hope that you have a great Tuesday night. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad that you've joined us. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs>